Welcome to Grace this weekend. Uh, thanks for being with us. If you're here in the room or if you're watching online, maybe as a, even for the first time, thanks so much for giving your time here on a Sunday morning. Lots of things that we could be doing. So thanks for being here uh, with us. We've been in a series now for the last handful of weeks called Right Now. And uh, what we've been saying is that all of us are in a season of life, like kind of a life situation. We've been calling that our right now. Where am I right now? If you had to describe kind of the situation that I'm in, all of us have one. We're all in a season. And we said what's, what's kind of neat is that that season is always going to be new. I'm always going to be kind of a rookie at doing this part of my life because I've never done it before. And we said we want to make sure we're, we're approaching our right now kind of in the right way. And we said whenever I'm in a season of life, I'm always going to be tempted to believe a handful of different myths when I'm in the middle of my right now. And we talked about three of them on the first week. We said when I'm living life, I might be tempted to believe the arrival myth, that, that life is not really happening right now. It's really going to start when I arrive at whatever point kind of I pick in my mind. Uh, maybe that's getting married. Maybe it's finishing high school or college. Maybe it's getting out of debt. Whatever that big goal is in my mind where my life is really going to begin when I arrive there. We, we said that's one of the myths that we could believe in and kind of lock into. We said another myth is kind of the opposite. We call it the nostalgia myth. It's where I look not into the future, but backwards. And I think back to the glory days of when things were amazing. And back when I had that one job, it was so fun. Back when I was with my college buddies, we just hung out all the time. Right? There, there might be a time of life that was kind of the, the peak in my mind. And I always am trying to get back there. And where I am is not there. And so it's always a little bit frustrating or disheartening. So I look backwards to that nostalgia myth and think if only life could be the way that it used to be. We, we said there's another myth I might believe or kind of lock into. It's uh, when I'm looking in my life and especially with social media, we are always looking at each other's lives. So we talked about the filtered life myth. That if I'm scanning through social media, I'm going to see your filtered, edited, perfected life. You're going to see mine. And we're, as we look at each other's lives, we think, boy, if I had a life like yours, maybe my life would be better. Maybe my life would really start to click. If I had their marriage or their job or their opportunities, that would be amazing. And we said that the thing with all of these myths is that if I believe any of them, what's going to happen is I'm going to miss kind of the wonder of what's happening right here, right now. And we said none of those things are actually true. There's not an arrival point where I really start to begin my life or my life's not in the past. It's not someone else's life. The reality is God has me where he has me on purpose. There's a specific reason and design for what God is going to do in my life. And so we asked some questions about it right now. We said, is it possible that God actually wants to do things in my life and in my heart and change me in some specific ways? And he's actually using my season to do that. He wants to do that. Is that possible? And maybe another question we asked is, is it possible that God has placed me where I am? That this, this job or this season, this school, this neighborhood, that I am where I am on purpose and God actually might want to work through my life to affect change and to bring hope and actually to help people in a way that maybe I never even imagined before. 
So that's what we've been talking about. We said, how do we really take advantage of, kind of our season or our situation? And we've been taking some time to look at different ones over the last handful of weeks. So uh, we kind of kicked off the first one looking at motherhood and uh, parenting that way, saying, how do I take advantage of that if that's my right now? We looked a few weeks ago at midlife investment. We said, if I'm in a place where I kind of am at the peak of my influence, how do I maximize that and make sure I'm taking advantage of it? And then uh, last week, if you were here, we talked about singleness and dating. And uh, if you missed any of those conversations, highly would encourage you to uh, catch up online. You can do that at our website, graceohio.org, or catch up through our Facebook page or YouTube channel. If you didn't know we have one of those, you can kind of watch or listen to all those for free online. And uh, what we want to do today is we want to have a kind of a specific conversation about a, an area of life that we actually spend a ton of time in and actually spend a ton of energy in, and that's going to be our work life. Our work life. If you are like the normal American and you spend, uh, you start working kind of in high school, college, and you're going to work through to retirement, the average American is going to spend, catch this number, between 90 and 100,000 hours at work huge portion of our lives. If you add it up and looked at it a different way, that would be like between 10 and 12 years straight of working with no sleep. A massive portion of our lives, we were going to spend day in and day out, hours and minutes, and even years of our lives spent there. And many of us, of course, are going to have a kind of a specific season of work that we're in. And some of us might have an official job. We might draw a paycheck. Some of us, our work might look a little bit different. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and you work that way. Maybe you're a volunteer that's highly committed and engaged. You work that way. Many of us would have employment of various kinds. You might be between semesters or school years and you're picking up kind of seasonal work. I just want you to work for a handful of months and make some cash. Uh, some of us might be finishing up an internship, finishing college, and we're saying, I'm, I'm getting into my first job for the first time for real. Like, how do I do this now? This is a different season of work that I'm in. Some of us are going to be at, at kind of the pinnacle or the peak of our career, and, and work looks different for you maybe than it did in the, in the past. And some of us would even look and say, I'm out of work right now. I mean, I wish I could find some work, and I'm trying to kind of scramble to get a job again, and I wish I could have that opportunity. There's some unique pains that come with that aspect of work. And I realize that some of us, we have uh, work situations because of our boss or coworkers or some difficulties in work, and man, that area of life consumes our thoughts, and it, it keeps us up at night. We might even think or might be actively looking for another job because our work life is so stressful. And it's going to consume us in all those ways. And then some of us, we love work. Right? We're, we're working maybe our, the job that we wanted to have and we love it and we're kind of throwing ourselves at it. And maybe our struggle is more one of how do I balance my love for my job and my work versus the rest of my life and my family, kind of that work-life balance. So no matter where I am in work, Right? If I draw a paycheck or I don't, if I'm just getting started or if I'm nearing the end of kind of my working years, we're all in a season of it. What if the goal of this season is not to get through it or just to kind of ride it out or show up and put in my time? What if there's actually some very specific purpose to my work life? What if, what if my work life is something that actually God wants to kind of invade or join me in and he wants to use me in ways that I never could have imagined. So what I wanted to start to talk about. What if I could approach work with a different mindset? 
in a different approach, and it refreshed and energized my vision for my work. So if you're a Christ follower, I think that's what it's going to do. I think this conversation will be very helpful. I think it will be energizing. If you are not yet a Christ follower, I think this conversation will be eye-opening and really clarifying to kind of as you're investigating your faith maybe to take a unique look at how a Christ follower could approach work because it's very distinct. It's a very different way to approach work than just kind of showing up and running through the motions. There is purpose and meaning to it, and we want to capture that and I really be moved by it. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to draw some principles out of a section of the Bible we're going to kind of set up camp in. It's going to be in the book of Colossians. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open that up uh, to the book of Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 12. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, no big deal. You can grab one, a physical one from underneath your chair there in front of you and uh, open up at page 822 in those Bibles. And if you need a Bible, if, if you don't have one personally, listen, we would love for you to just take that home with you. Write your name in it, use it today, and then keep it, take it right out the door and consider that our gift to you. We want everyone to be able to have a copy uh, of God's Word and be able to use it. Of course, you can look on your phone as well, but however you want to uh, connect to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 12, and let me give you a little bit of background here as you're making your way to that passage. So Colossians 3, 12, here's what's happening in the passage. So the Apostle Paul, he's a, a leader in the early church, and he's actually writing to an existing church. He's writing them a letter, and this church would receive this letter, and Paul's going to write it actually from jail. He's actually in prison, and, and this guy, Paul, he actually would find himself in jail because of his work, he was uh, communicating to people about Jesus and would eventually be put into prison because of that. And so if there's ever a guy that would understand work stress and uh, work injustice and being misunderstood, it's Paul. He's a guy that personally kind of lived that out, and he would be uh, communicating some things to this group of people in, in light of their faith. And so let me read this here in, in verse 12. It's going to be kind of an umbrella verse for us to get our hearts and minds around and then we'll dig into it. Here's what he says in verse 12. Therefore, is God's chosen people holy and dearly loved? Now, let me just stop there for a minute. So, so what Paul's doing, and he's going to address this group of people, and he's assuming some things. He's assuming that this group of people are followers of Jesus. He's going to look at them and say, remember, you are God's chosen people. And God's chosen people, by the way, are not a race of people or a nation of people. It's anyone that would look and say, I want to be a follower of Jesus. And that's, that's who he's writing to. And by the way, if you are a follower of Jesus today, you are God's chosen people. And if you're considering being a follower of Jesus, you would also become one of God's chosen people. And he's going to look at them and he's, say, he's going to say, you are holy and you're dearly loved. And all this is in the context of what he's communicating earlier in the letter. He's let me kind of catch us up how this works. As he looks at these set of Christ followers, he's going to say, remember, God's chosen people, you're holy, you're different, you're set apart to God. Remember, you, you were imperfect, you are imperfect. You had a debt you couldn't pay, and that separated you from God. Remember what God did for you? God made a choice in light of the fact that we have broken a relationship with God, that we're imperfect, God made a choice to send Jesus. Jesus would live a perfect life. He would fulfill God's law completely. He would die innocently on the cross. That's what the crucifixion's all about. And now when somebody says, I want to be a Christ follower, Jesus' perfection is transferred to 
our account. And these people that Paul's writing to have made that decision. He says, now God sees you through the perfection of Jesus. And now you, even though you have sinned and you have been imperfect, just like all of us have, God considers you holy. You're, you're set apart. You're a holy person now. You're dearly loved. And all of that is going to be the context really for this whole conversation. Paul's going to look and say, you've been forgiven. You have been loved. You are God's chosen people. Now listen, in light of what you've received, in light of the fact that God's forgiven you and done this for you, I want you to do some things as you respond back to God saying thank you for the salvation that he's given you. Here's what he says. Midway through verse 12, he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's almost like Paul's saying, hey, hey, remember the compassion that God showed you? When you sinned against him, he didn't smite you or kill you. He was compassionate for you. He sent Jesus. Remember the kindness? Remember the, that God provided for you even when you were his enemy and you didn't want to follow him? The humility, the gentleness, the patience, what you have been shown now, I want you to clothe yourselves and show that back to the people around you. I want you to love as you've been loved. I want you to right, be kind as God has been kind to you. And then what he's going to do is kind of unpack that further in 12 through 17. And then he's going to apply that to specific areas of life, specific kind of right nows that we could be in. So he's going to say, take that verse 12, what I just said. And if you're a wife, verse 18, wives, do it in this way. This is what it would look like. Verse 19, husbands, this is what it'll look like for you. 20, verse, to children, right? Do it this way. Fathers, right? This is how it'll show up. And then he's going to talk to, ready? Verse 22, slaves and masters. We're going to talk about slavery because I know there's probably questions popping up in our mind. How is slavery work in the Bible? And what does God think of that? Let me read through the passage. We'll talk a little bit about it. 22 says this, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. This is whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ that you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. It says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Let me talk to this a bit, because uh, there's probably some questions about, well, what do you mean there's slavery in the Bible? Is God endorsing slavery? It seems like this guy Paul is telling slaves and masters how to how to be slaves and masters. Like, what's up with that? How does that work? Let's talk about that for a minute. So in the Roman Empire, that's the context of where this letter was written, slavery would have been part of the fabric of society. It's really how society was built. It was so common, it would have been completely normal, and slaves would have been considered property, really human property. Uh, they, they could have been bought or sold or exchanged or traded or inherited. And these people, they would get them, they would be in debt for all kinds of reasons. Often it was through war that slaves would be captured and then indebted. And then they could work off their, their kind of their debt and become free over time in some situations. Now, you might ask the question, why, did, why didn't Paul talk to the slaves and the masters and, and try to set the slaves loose? Why, why didn't he 
try to kind of undo this institution of slavery? It's a fair question. At this point in time, if Paul would have tried to do that, all it would do is cause societal upheaval. It would put the slaves' lives in danger. It was the wrong move at that point in time, right? So here's what he does instead. He, he kind of cuts underneath this institution of slavery, and he says something to slaves and to masters that is absolutely radical. When they would have heard this, they would have thought, man, nobody does this. Rather than trying to cause a social revolution or a political revolution, which, by the way, is never the point of Christianity, just to make sure that that's clear, the point of following Jesus is always that we are changed from the inside out, right? And then social change happens from there. He points to slaves and masters and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you guys to treat each other basically like brothers and sisters. I want you to love each other. I want you to show respect to one another. I want you to act as if God is watching this relationship and treat each other accordingly. And what that would do eventually is that would erode the institution of slavery and cause that to actually be abolished in a variety of different societies over the years and the centuries, including the breakdown of slavery here in our own culture and society. Want to make sure you know that background and see it. Now, what we can do is we can apply these words that are given to slaves and masters, and we can apply that to our workspace, right? If I'm a boss, I'm a, if I'm an employer or I'm an employee, or if I'm in the middle somewhere, I can see myself in these words and draw some principles from it. And that's exactly what we're going to do here in our time. We're going to look at five principles uh, that make up the word merit, kind of work through this acronym, merit. And if you're taking notes, you want to jot this down. We're going to work through the word uh, merit, and I'll give you the Webster's definition here first. Here, here's the idea of merit. The quality of being particularly good or worthy, especially so as to deserve praise or reward. So when you and I think about work, we're going to tend to think, I mean, I want to do a good job I want, if I'm going to get a raise, I got I to gotta get a merit increase. I want my value to go up, and that's usually our compensation is tied to it. The conversation we want to have today is how do I have a different kind of merit increase? Right? How, how does my merit go up in the eyes of God? Not earning his salvation, but being more worthy and valuable in how I work and how my days are spent in my job. And so that's what we're going to talk about, fill out this kind of this acronym. Here's the first one that's going to show up, is I'm going to have a different kind of motivation. A different kind of motivation. Here's what I put in your notes. This motivation is more than pleasing people. It's about pleasing Christ. Okay, kind of a, a foundational principle. It's more than pleasing people. It's about pleasing Christ. Let me take us back to these verses. Here's what he says. He says to basically employees, the slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Do it not only when their eye is on you, not only when they're watching to win their favor, to please them, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, working for the Lord, not for human masters. And we all know how this works. When I'm, if I have a job, I'm going to be motivated, no matter what, to please the people that I'm working with or I'm working for. Right? There's always going to be a boss or a board or stakeholders or customers. There's always someone to please, and that's fine and that's good. Paul's going to say, but it can go beyond that, and for the Christ follower, it actually needs to. 
it needs to be a higher motivation than just pleasing people. Because we all know it's like if you've ever had a great boss, you know how easy it is to work if you've ever had a really good boss that you like. Maybe it's somebody you believe in, someone you respect. It's easy to show up to work and give your very best to that person and kind of show up and give your energy. But what happens when that person leaves and gets a new job? What happens when that person retires and there's a new boss and that boss right, is different and they're, they're not as inspiring or they're not as engaging and maybe they do things that are just kind of intolerable, right? Maybe they, maybe they cheer for Golden State. I mean, this is getting crazy, right? How do I work for someone like that? Right? That's a fair question. And I want to look and say when, when that inevitably happens, what the Bible's actually saying is my, my motivation doesn't actually have to change because for the Christ follower, my, my true boss never really changes. At the end of the day, I'm always working for Jesus. So I can take out this board or that board or this boss or that boss or this customer base. That, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm working primarily for Christ. And he is the one that ultimately I'm accountable to. And that is huge. That is huge to know. And that's why Paul's going to lean in here and say, guys, slaves, listen. It's more than just showing up and kind of doing lip service, just trying to please the master to, to win his favor or just serving him when he, his eyes on you, when he's watching. It needs to go deeper. That needs to be sincere. It needs to be from the heart, ideally, because someone's always watching. I was thinking about this. My, uh, my four-year-old daughter, her name's Olive, and her name's Olivia. We call her Olive. And uh, she, she was being sent to go, like, on her way to bed, on her way to her room to go put something back. Lori had asked her to do this. And as, as my little four-year-old made her way back, she didn't put the thing back where she was supposed to. She left it out. And, and Lori goes back to check on her, and she asks her about it. She's like, hey, honey, hey, Olive, uh, you, you didn't put that, that thing away I asked you to put away. And Olive's like, well, yeah, mom, you couldn't see me, so I didn't do that, right? She's just like, oh, straight up owns it. I love that about little kids, right? They're awesome. But, but then Lori keeps pressing the lesson a little bit further, but she's like, honey, you know, you, it's really important that you always do the right thing because God can always see you, right? It's not just about, it's not just mommy seeing you or, or dad seeing you. God can always see you. And then my four-year-old daughter, she said something really fascinating. It was kind of confusing to us. She looked at Lori and she said, well, mom, uh, God can't see through my belly. And Lori's like, whoa, what? What are we talking about here? She goes, yeah, mom, you, you told me that God lives in my heart. You know, and one time God, God made it up to my throat and I swallowed, and now God's in my belly. <laughs> and, he, and he can't see through my belly. <laughs> I was like, we need to work on some theology here <laughs> with my four-year-old. This is fantastic. But, but that's the thing is, Right? God can see through our belly. God can see everything. He sees the good and the bad and the ugly, and he, he sees it all. And I can be motivated to always be accountable to him. He's not inspecting me, but he is watching, and he can see it. Sometimes you hear that, that phrase, um, people will say, character is who you are when no one's watching. I disagree with that. Someone's always watching. That's real. If you believe in God, if you believe in Christ, someone's always watching us. They see the, the hidden, unknown things that we do that, that are little acts of service that nobody's ever going to know about except Jesus. And they see when we're trying to cut a corner, right? He sees all that. 
And there's an accountability, there's a motivation. And what that motivation is going to do is it's going to lead me right into this next part where it's going to lead me to a different kind of effort. All right, because I'm pleasing Christ, it's going to lead me to a different kind of effort. Here's what I put in your notes. This effort is more than just putting in our time. It's about excellence for Christ. It's about excellence for Christ. Recognize if work is just work as, as usual, if it's just showing up and getting a paycheck, right? Kind of turning the crank. I got to go. It's Monday tomorrow. Here we go again. And, and all I'm trying to do is grind out a living. And that's kind of the highest level that I'm going to see my work at. It's extremely tempting to do the absolute minimum, to just show up, kind of not really be checked in from the heart or from the mind, show up and kind of mindlessly do whatever it is I'm going to do and kind of just do it. I'm going to end up cutting corners, kind of showing minimal effort here and there. And by the way, if you want to not be excited about going to work, live like that because low engagement is the most de-energizing thing you can find. Right? When I show up and I, I don't really want to be there and I'm not really going to do my best, it's extremely demotivating. Right? Nobody wants to live like that. We want to show up because we're made by God, by the way, to work. Work is a gift, before sin even entered the world, God gave us work. That's why we get excited to work. We want to work. When we get excited about packing a million meals, why? Because we're made to contribute. It's part of humanity. It's part of how we're wired and who we are. That's why we enjoy doing things that are rewarding. But if I can see my effort and my work differently, if I can see it as not just something I put my time in, but I'm doing this for Jesus, that effort is going to start to change. What, what the Bible would actually describe is that, is that my work, showing up to the job and, and putting my heart into it, this is what verse 23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters. What that's describing is work is actually an act of worship. If you ever thought of it that way. When you think of act of worship, we show up and sing songs at church or we give our money and that's an act of worship and there's a variety of other ones, but, but work is actually an act of worship. If I'm doing it for Jesus, I'm putting my heart into it, that actually becomes something that I'm doing directly for God. It's beautiful. You might look at me and say, well, Ryan, you, you don't get my job, man. I, like, I make widgets, right? Does God really care about how awesome my widgets are or not? And I would look at you and say, well, he kind of does and he kind of doesn't. You know, whether, whatever you do for a living, does God care about the thing, the widget? Not really. What he cares about, though, is he cares about my energy and effort and intentionality and what I'm putting into that because it can be done directly for him. Boy, that's what he actually cares about. Here's a good rule of thumb. God's always looking for my heart. That's what he cares about. He wants me to show up from the heart, and that can be done day in and day out in very small acts at work in very practical ways if I'm doing it with excellence for Jesus. My, uh, my kids, my girls especially, they like to make art, you know, and this is, a, this is a piece of art that I think my five-year-old made at one point. And you're like, that is uh, indiscernible what that is, right? I'm not even sure if I know what it is. It's a boat, and there's some fish, and and uh, what's interesting about this piece of art, there's a son, is this was made by my daughter for me. Right? She did it for me. 
And I know that she did the best that she could when she made this. This is like the maxing out her skill level. You know, as a five-year-old, this is excellence. The key thing, though, is, is she did it for me. She makes all kinds of art, but when she makes it for me, it's different. It's done directly for her daddy. And now I'm going to keep it. You might say, Ryan, do you care about paper and some, some marker ink? Now I could care less about paper, a piece of paper and marker ink. But what's captured here and why I might keep this piece of paper is the fact that my daughter put her heart into it. She put her excellence into it, and she did it for me. And if I can see my work like that, and when I show up, if I'm flipping burgers or if I'm making a project plan or if I'm driving a bus or whatever it is I'm doing, it really doesn't matter as long as it's moral and legal, okay? No black market stuff. Like, it doesn't count as work, right? As long as it's moral and legal, if I'm doing it from the heart, then God would receive that as an act of worship from me. It's me saying thank you for what you've done for me, God. Powerful. Right? There's a different motivation. There's a different effort and all of that is going to lead to a different reward. A different reward. Boy, and this, this really matters. Here's what I put in your notes. More than money and recognition, it's about an eternal inheritance. It's about an eternal inheritance. Look at what the Bible says here in verse 24. Right? He says, do this. Do whatever you do. Do it for the Lord. Do it with all your heart. Verse 24. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. If I go to work and my work and the reward that I'm chasing in my work is, is a paycheck and people thinking my name is great, what happens in that scenario? If that's, all, if that's the way that I'm going to approach my work, what's going to happen is I'm going to put in all kinds of effort. And let's just be honest and recognize the reality that when I put in all that effort chasing the money or chasing the name or the respect, the recognition, I'm never going to be matched for my effort. There's always going to be a gap. Why? Because you're not going to ever really be compensated the way you feel you should be compensated. You're never going to be recognized the way you feel you should be recognized. So there's always going to be a gap. And when that gap exists, what's going to happen? If I'm chasing this reward, what happens is I start to feel taken advantage of, start to feel used, I, feel, I start to feel abused. I start to think my boss is a jerk. And then you, not my boss, but like you, maybe your boss, you might think that, right? But like there's this opportunity to think, wow, they're, they're, these people are taking advantage of me. Why? Because I'm chasing something that really my boss could never, your boss can never really understand the, the hours of energy and time, the sleep loss, the, the work that you put in because no human being can fully recognize that. I need to know if I'm going to work, especially if I'm working for the Lord and, and my effort is going towards him, that there's going to be a reward that is based in perfect justice by a God that sees all things, right? That he can see my motivation. He can see what the thoughts I'm thinking at night as I'm spending my passions and my time thinking about how to improve my job or the thankless parts of my job that nobody knows about or that idea that I came up with and that coworker stole. Right? God sees all that and he's the only one that can appropriately reward us. I need to know that. And by the way, that reward cannot be taken, stolen. It is eternal. Right? Can't be robbed from me. 
Again, if I started to imagine what that might be like, that there's going to actually be a payoff. There's going to be a day of reckoning for all of those misunderstandings. It's going to change the way that I show up at work. It's going to change my effort. Because here's the reality. Even if you have a great boss, right? even if you have a great boss, your boss is imperfect. And you have to put up with some part of who your boss is that, that you almost just can't live with. Like, let me give you an example. I, I have worked with uh, Pastor Jeff now since 2004. He's been my boss. And uh, Pastor Jeff is a great boss. He really is. You're a great boss, Jeff, Pastor Jeff. I want you to know that. But there is one thing that I find absolutely intolerable about Pastor Jeff's leadership. Just, com I mean, completely unacceptable. Our offices have been together for probably the last uh, six, seven years. We're kind of always, always together. And, and Jeff, when he gets dialed in and he's focused, man, he likes to bump his music in his office. And we have very thin walls, right, in our offices. And so Pastor Jeff's music very, very quickly becomes my music, right? His music is now invading into my office, no matter what's happening in my office. And I just want you to know that this is an opportunity for bitterness, right? That's what can happen when, when over and over and over you see your boss's music comes into your office. And I don't know if you know much about Pastor Jeff's uh, musical preferences. They're interesting and um, they're, they're fascinating and uh, th they're so dynamic that I thought I might share them with you uh, right now. So here we go. You can experience the injustice that I experienced. Let's listen together. on repeat, four hours, full blast, right, right there. That, my friends, that's how you get rewards in heaven, right? You endure things. <laughs> you endure things like that. I love it. We're, we're playing with it. We're having fun with it. But you all know how this goes. You, you endure something from your boss or your coworkers or even your employees that nobody can really appreciate. Nobody can really appreciate. And there's no way to compensate for that. Would it change my perspective if I knew that there was going to be a reckoning, a reward for that? If I believe that, well, it changes everything. It changes everything. Now I don't have to go fight for my way and fight for my rights and argue for my recognition. I can trust God. He's going to make that all work out in the end, right? It changes everything. Different motivation. Different, different effort, different reward. And then, well, I love this one, a different kind of influence. A different influence is going to be the next one. Here's how I put it in, uh, in your notes. Different kind of influence. It's more than tolerating coworkers. It's about gaining a hearing. You know, we actually have to go down to the next passage here to capture this principle. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 Here's what Paul's going to say. He's going to say this, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul's going to look. Remember, he's talking to Christ followers here, and he's going to look and say, Hey, you're a Christ follower. You're going to spend some of your life, and we can certainly apply this to work, and say, we're going to spend some of our work life 
with people that aren't Christ followers. Right? There's a reality to that. And Paul's going to look and say, you need to operate with some wisdom if you work with people that don't follow Jesus. And if you're somebody who doesn't follow Jesus, you know how this works, I think, a little bit. I'm somebody that didn't follow Christ until college, and so I experienced different kinds of Christ followers. And by the way, all Christ followers are weird. We're supposed to be, right? We're supposed to be different. We're not supposed to be like everybody else. But if you're not a Christ follower, you know how this works. You know that there's good weird, and then there's not so good weird. There's like bad weird. Right? There's, and you're like, what, what's bad, weird? You know, let me describe it. You know how, how it works. There's bad, weird Christians that when you work with them, they don't really work that hard. Right? They, they talk about, they talk maybe about Jesus stuff a lot. They, I bet you they have a bunch of Jesus junk just everywhere, sprawling, just Jesus junk everywhere, little trinkets and things that said coffee mugs and banners and stuff and Jesus stuff. And, and the way that they talk isn't like Paul is saying where there's their conversation is always full of grace, full of undeserved favor, where they're showing kindness to people and compassion to people and gentleness and humility and patience. Sometimes they're condescending and they're kind of preachy and right. nobody really likes to be around them. Why? Well, they're, they're kind of the bad weird. If you're not a Christ follower, you know the flip side where there's a good weird. I remember this. I remember interacting with both kinds of weird Christians I remember interacting with bad, weird Christians thinking, oh my goodness, like I'm never going to be that guy. And then I remember interacting with good, weird Christians. And these kind of people, boy, they worked hard. Their work was done well. Um, they didn't sell their, they didn't sell themselves, they didn't sell their soul to the job, but they worked hard and the work that they did was, was honorable and it was excellent. They did good, solid work and they didn't cut corners they weren't perfect, but they tended to be honest and trustworthy. They had integrity. And when they would communicate, right, good, weird Christians, they would communicate with people that don't believe what they believe with grace, with undeserved favor. Right? Even if you're not a Christ follower, right, and you're interacting with a good, weird Christian, you, you might know that you don't agree about something, but, but they're still complimentary towards you, and they still say nice things, and they show favor towards you, even though maybe you disagree completely. I remember interacting with good, weird Christians and thinking, man, if I ever had a problem, I might talk to that guy. Right? If I ever have a problem, I might get advice from that guy because there's something different about that person. What happened there? That person grew in influence in my eyes. That's what we're looking for. That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying if you're a Christ follower, you want to grow in your influence. You want to be the kind of person that somebody that's not, says, I don't know if I want to follow Jesus, might look at it and say, I want to be weird, but like that. It's different, but it's good. I want to be in on that. I want to be changed, and I want to be motivated. I, I, I see that there's something different about the way that person's living, and it's translating an influence with people. I want to live that way, Right? Motivation, reward, effort, influence. Here's the final one is treatment. Treatment. This is the, the kind of the key concept here in, in what Paul's saying as he looks at slaves and masters or employees and employers, saying ultimately we need to treat each other differently. Here's how I put it in your notes. More than human resources, it's about living like the children of God. It's about living like the children of God. 
here's how this shows up. It's kind of an extension of influence. But we're going to treat each other differently if we're followers of Jesus, no matter where we fall in an org chart. There's going to be a, a respect and a love and a patient that supersedes what title I have or who I report to or what my tenure looks like. Ultimately, that treatment has to show up. And he's going to look at slaves and masters, and, and maybe if you're an employer, this one really speaks to you, where you would look and say, oh, I, I want to make sure that I'm treating my employees the way that Jesus would have me do that because he's watching me. I want to make sure that I'm compensating them fairly and doing my best to recognize them, even though I can't see everything that they do. I want to treat them the way that I would want to be treated if I was in their seat. I want to love them the way that I've been loved. More than just kind of the the human resources guidebook tells me to. Why? Because I have an allegiance that's higher. If I'm an employee, I want to treat my boss differently. When everybody else is chiming in and talking about how terrible the boss is and I can't believe she made that decision or he made that decision or he made that purchase and did you know and did you hear about? Because by the way, that stuff's always going to exist in workplaces if that bothers you in a Christ follow, as you're a Christ follower, it probably should bother you, but just choose to not participate in it. Why? Because I want to show honor and respect and dignity to my boss. They're not an inhuman in thing. They're not my boss. They're a person. It's different. And here's why this matters so much. The number one identifier of a follower of Jesus is their love for each other. That, that is what distinguishes us ultimately. That's what Jesus said. If you want to know who my followers are, look at their love. Look at their love for each other. And that's going to show up directly in how we treat each other in the workplace. I think about when people interact with my family, with my kids, my hope is, uh, certainly not that it's not just that they behave. What I want people to experience when they interact with, with any of my kids or my wife or myself is I hope that they get, they get kind of an experience of what's important in our family, what our family values, what our priorities are. As you interact with like a roadman, I want you to know what the roadmans are like. This is what Paul's saying. When you interact with a Christ follower, with a child of God, you should be able to know that this is what the family of God is like. This is who we are. This is what matters to us. This is what makes us tick. No matter where I am at work, no matter what position, can I live like a child of God? Compassion, humility, kindness, gentleness, patience, merit. So how do we wrap this up? How do we walk away? I think we look and we ask ourselves this question, God, have have you put me into a situation, a unique life setting at work? And maybe your work doesn't show up in an org chart. We talked about that. But maybe your work is God asking that your merit kind of be raised in that environment, that we would work differently. Even just working on this myself, I, I see how motivating and practical it is as, as I start to look and say, you know what, if I'm motivated to follow Jesus, and by the way, this is the one I'm focusing on right now, is, is I want to be motivated to follow Jesus. 
work for Jesus. Say, Ryan, you're a pastor. Yeah, but I mess this up too. Okay, I get distracted and start to think about and work for the wrong things just like everybody else. I want to look and say, I want to work directly for Jesus. I, I got to prepare differently for a day if I'm going to show up at work working for Jesus instead of just kind of running through the motions. Might look and say, How, how's it going to affect my effort? Uh, I'm going to fight distraction. I'm going to throw myself into my work. It might mean pausing social media longer so that I can engage. It depends on what your work is like, right? If my reward's different, I'm going to be more tolerating of things that, that kind of are injustices in my life. I want to look at the people, not as people to endure, but people that I can love and grow and influence with. I especially want to show up and look at how I'm treating people. What is maybe a letter that would speak to you and somewhere maybe you could focus, even like tomorrow? Is there one that jumps off the page even right now? Like, you know what? If I was working for Jesus, boy, I, I would approach this differently. I would think I would act and work in very real and practical, tangible ways differently. This is how I think this thing works. This is not earth-shattering. It's the kind of thing that when I start to think and act and live this way, it starts to change me a little bit at a time. This is the kind of thing I might post right in my desk so I can keep it in front of my face or on my phone, somewhere where I can stay focused on the things of God in my workplace. Because what if God has placed me where I am for a reason and there's actually people that he's trying to affect through me? And unless I tie into my merit, that influence will never go up and that life change will never happen until the good weird starts to really start to pop. What if God wants to use you to affect an eternity? What if he's changing you through a difficult work situation? Because I want us to receive this not, not as, a, as five kind of self-help principles, right, for a better work environment. Here's what this is. Here's the heart of it. The heart of this is that Jesus has come and died for us. He's lived and died paid his life and paid the price for my sin. And now what I can do, what we have the opportunity to do is to say thank you back to him through this. Right? Just saying thank you. It doesn't earn me salvation. It's simply a way for me to say, Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for me. Now I want to say thank you back to you all day long in little decisions that add up to a big lifestyle. Right? And all that's happening right now. As we sing and as we pray, we're going to dial into that. I'm going to have the band come out. Can I focus in on what Jesus has done for me, whether you're a Christ follower or not, and ask the question, God, how do you want that to show up for me at work even tomorrow? Let me pray for us. Father, we, we pause right now recognizing the great love that you have for us. Stopping to say, God, thank you for the gift of work. Thank you that there is meaningful contribution that we can give ourselves to. Whether or not there's a paycheck attached to it, thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for the jobs that you've provided to us. 
the things that we get to give ourselves to. Thank you, Lord, that you would love us enough to reach down in our imperfection and offer Jesus to us. Your perfection covering our imperfection. And now, Lord, would you, would you help us to be motivated by that to show up at work tomorrow or tonight and to, to live it differently to be motivated to say thank you to you regardless of how we're treated or the circumstance that we're in or where we find ourselves in our jobs or in our org charts, Lord. Would you use us to be an influence? Would you change the way that we show up at work and the quality of work that we do? God, would you work this stuff into our lives and our hearts and would you meet us here even now focusing on the price that you paid for us, Jesus. Price we could never pay for ourselves. We thank you. It's in your name we pray.